0: This is Thomas DePoen.
1: This is Max.
0: This is Kevin Hamm. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. In the summer of 1950 the Los Alamos Laboratory in New Mexico. Yes, that Los Alamos. Physicist Enrico Fermi was having lunch uh, with several other you know, co- physicists and colleagues and is reported to have suddenly remarked, where is everybody? Uh, as the story goes, he proceeded to rattle off a series of calculations and probabilities on star formation, planet formation, uh, the probability of Earth-like planets, the spontaneous ar- arising of life durations of civilizations, that sort of thing, and then concluded on the basis of those back-of-the-envelope, back-of-the-napkin, really, calculations, that the Earth ought to have been visited a long time ago and many times since.
1: Visited by aliens is, is the idea. Is the,
0: the the suggestion, yeah. So, thus returning to the question, so where is everyone? By all like, observations that we've made, there's no other intelligent life anywhere that we can see in our galaxy. There might not even be life anywhere that we can see other than on the Earth. And we've only been looking for less than a century, but if life was common, we should have seen some by now. So where is everybody? That's the Fermi Paradox. So um, that is a thing that is often addressed in science fiction. It's a high-concept sci-fi concept. So I thought we could have a little talk about that.
1: Don't don't use the phrase high concept. You're going to start a fight
0: oh, in the comments. Oh, boy. Well, that would be cool, because that would mean somebody would leave us a comment, other than yeah, British okay. Top Hat. Hey, guys. Fan favorites. <laughs> oh, favorite and, and and uh, the... the well, who's, who's the other one? The top green box.
1: The one who always beats Jake's wife yeah, to the punch. I don't remember the, his name. The, his,
0: his name is Chad. He's the Chad... The Chad something.
1: The Chad commenting slightly <laughs> yes. earlier. Okay, so... Uh, you wanted to bring this up because uh, partially because it has some relevance to Delta Green, but also just because uh,
0: it has relevance to science fiction in the broader fun. sense. Yeah, and yeah. it's a fun idea to talk about.
1: So I'm going to get the boring explanation out of the way quickly because it's the one that I personally believe, but it's also not interesting. Um, the most likely explanation for the Fermi paradox, in my opinion, is that they're just we're just improperly estimating the abundance of life in the universe. And I don't say that because I have, like, deep knowledge of any of the the calculations in, like, the Drake equation. I say that just because it seems more likely that a number that is generated quite arbitrarily would be wrong than positing an explanation like the Great Filter. The Great Filter is way fucking cooler, but it also is invoking something to essentially paper over what seems like just a calculation error.
0: Well, to talk about the Drake equation... Uh, the Drake equation was formulated by uh, Dr. Frank Drake in 1961 as mm-hmm. sort of a response to the Fermi paradox, sort of a way of diving deeper into it. Um, Fermi may have came up with a similar calculation himself in the cafeteria, but he never wrote it down. The Drake equation has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight variables. Uh, you have the equation is n equals a bunch of things, n is the number of civilizations in our galaxy that are capable of communication, which are in our current past light cone. Uh, the variables are the rate of star formation in the galaxy, uh, the fraction of stars that the planets, the average number of planets that can potentially sustain life per star, the fraction of planets that could support life that actually develop life, um, the fraction of planets with life that go on to develop intelligence life, the fraction of civilizations that develop um, communication technology that could be detected at a distance and the length of time for which civilizations uh, emit detectable signals. So of those things, several of those are actually known. We know the average rate of star formation. We know the fraction of stars that have planets. It's actually very close to to, to one. Most stars, now that we started looking for a- exoplanets, astronomers have, have discovered that actually planets that have stars are the norm.
1: Stars that have planets are the norm.
0: Exactly, yeah. The number of planets that can potentially support life, that's an unknown. We can make estimates about that based on our solar system, but that's that's dangerous.
1: One example. Yeah,
0: we have we, exactly. We have one data point. Although, that one data point suggests that there are as many th- as four bodies in the solar system that could have sustained life at one point. Earth is one <laughs> of them, Venus, Mars, and Europa being the others. Anyway, the um, fraction of planets that could sustain life that then develop life, we don't—again, we don't know that. Although it is interesting to note that it appears as though the Earth— developed life almost the very instant it became capable of sustaining life so that again that's one data point but that does suggest that that fraction is very close to one the fraction of plants that go on to develop intelligent life we don't know that we have one data point the fraction of civilizations that develop signals technology that can be de- detected again we don't know that we have a single data point the length of time for which civilizations emit signals we kind of know that we can assume it is at least 100 years because that's as long as we've been doing it and we're about to kill ourselves Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so of those seven variables, we know three of them. We can make guesses about two of them. Two are just straight up unknown. So what you can do with those is you can plug in estimates and figure out, well, in order for us to have not detected anybody, what is the upper and lower bounds on these values? I personally have not done the math on those, um, but this is a, an idea that's been kicked around for almost a 100 years now. And some of the upper and lower bounds on those to get observations to 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 get values that are consistent with our observations of the galaxy are fairly extreme. Hence comes in what you mentioned, Max, uh, the Great Filter being one possible solution for the Fermi Paradox. The Great Filter being there is something, um, either a law of nature or something about the way life develops or something about the way civilizations develops or something else entirely that uh, creates a barrier for life to develop into a technological signal emitting detectable entity. We know there's two filters because we exist right now and we're able to emit signals. Either the filter lies behind us, which means life there's there's something about the chemistry of life that is very difficult, very unlikely to occur, and I'll, I'll I'll come back to what I think of that in a second. The other possibility is the filter lies ahead of us, which is there is something about the way civilizations, technological civilizations develop that inevitably leads to their decline. And honestly, we might be looking at that. We might be looking at that one. <laughs> in fact, Somebody once said that if mankind ever goes out to explore the stars, the worst possible thing that we could find are the ruins of civilizations more advanced than us, because that means the filter lies ahead of us and we're fucked.
1: Or that's the best thing, because it means a bunch of free stuff. Be it, like, it does um, mean a bunch of free stuff,
0: yeah, yeah. Xenaria, yeah, you could be fun. like the
1: factors. Yeah. The factors are the guys in Eclipse Phase who made their little little grubs or or slime molds or whatever that made their living. Uh, we think by uh, looking for signals from civilizations that looked like they were within you know a hundred years of destroying themselves in a singularity event and then they set a, they chart a course for that civilization by the time they get there the civilization's already destroyed itself and they can steal anything that's not nailed down because hey you just have a you have a huge treasure box filled with singularity level technology that's not actively being guarded by the civilization, and they show up in, in the solar system after the fall, which in the eclipse phase setting is a singularity event, and they're pretty upset to discover that actually there's a bunch of humans who are already engaged in the active exploitation of the singularity-level technology, so they've been essentially upstreamed by the people who are supposed to be wiped out by the godlike technology, and one of the, that's one of the hypotheses for why the factors keep telling humanity, don't develop AIs, because the factors realize, oh shit, these are people who can defend themselves and will only get better at defending themselves over time, and <laughs> we can't take their stuff, and we can't, <laughs> yeah. and we can't... You can't
0: take their stuff if they're not dead.
1: Yeah, and and we can't leave because we've already. My guess is that is that if you're a, a, a nomadic civilization that relies on looting tombs to survive, you invest pretty heavily in a single journey to a star system, such that you probably have no prospect for leaving until you have pillaged sufficient resources from the locals or their corpses. So the factors are now stuck in the solar system and cannot do anything until they find something to rip off.
0: Eclipse phase postulates that the great filter is uh is that singularity event it's it's the, the development of unshackled artificial intelligence which is well, interesting because of. it it's more of so what what were you going to say? I think we were going about to say the same thing.
1: Yeah, so so in eclipse phase it is um it is a a a form of civilizational death but it is also a form of enlightenment because you give birth to this super-intelligent being that then immediately picks up a signal from a special probe left behind by an incomprehensibly advanced alien civilization. That probe infects the super-AI with a virus that causes it to build a gate and depart to some unknown place.
0: Right. Yeah, there's a a super-advanced machine intelligence that exists—that arose in the in the history of the galaxy that sort of subsumes other machine intelligences into itself. And the process of doing that involves exterminating its biological creators. So that's kind of that, that is an interesting uh, approach to the Great Filter, which is that uh, biological civilizations get wiped out, but machine civilizations are just so different that they can't be detected.
1: And it doesn't necessarily have to be a machine civilization. It just has to be a super intelligent civilization. One of the hypotheses that people had about the factors was that the reason why they didn't develop AI is that their bodies are bi-silly little biological computers. So when an ex-surgeon infects a factor, it just slaps on another factor and starts calculating and becomes a big matrioshka brain.
0: Right, yeah. The the factors are, are a very interesting um uh, speculative life form uh, because they
1: use on like the Vong. The way in Star that their Wars. biology
0: is set up is that there is essentially no distinction between uh, factor biology and factor cybernetics because they can like they they have conscious control over their own their Bodies own physiology. Bodies of
1: computronium. Yeah,
0: exactly. Anyway, Eclipse Eclipse Phase is a cool setting and uh, deals with some of these topics.
1: Yeah, and it doesn't deal with them very often in the published material, except for in Million Year Echo. Because that's yeah. one of the only ones where you actually fuck with the super intelligent stuff.
0: Somebody wrote a three-part, or maybe it was a four-part. It was a little mini campaign, uh, like the Red, the Red Queen, or something.
1: I vaguely remember this. It
0: kind of deals with some of the like speculative, uh, Kardashev civilization crap.
1: Yeah, there, there was a, there was a, uh, a series of just like a lot of the stuff that the that the um Think Before Asking guy did was not actually like table ready. But one of the series that he did was. Here are like a half dozen civilizations that ascended to godhood and left behind all of this treasure that you can loot, but it's also defended by the hyper-advanced leftovers of the singularity civilization. And so there were there was like a group of guys that became um, – it's sim- similar to how in Revelation space are the guys that live inside the neutron star because they've just become uh, – software in an impossibly advanced computer that basically can't relate to meat-based life anymore because we're just so fucking slow.
0: If, um, Revelation Space. Spoilers, by the way, for Revelation Space by Alistair Reynolds. You yeah, haven't read that. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend. Jump to 17 minutes, 20 seconds to avoid spoilers. Um, Revelation Space's approach to the, the the Fermi Paradox is that the Great Filter is um, an advanced machine civilization that is actively culling intelligent civilizations in order to prevent like catastrophic loss of life when the Andromeda and Milky Way galaxies collide in several million years. And that is an idea that Mass Effect also did, but a little bit more crudely. Um, Mass Effect also has a great filter in the form of the Reapers, who again are actively culling biological civilizations every, you know, 10 million years or so.
1: Yeah, and the best part in in Revelation space is that what ends up – because it turns out that there are actually a lot of intelligent civilizations in Revelation space that have been – have figured out how to ignore the inhibitors and just avoid them. Yeah, and stay
0: away from them, which leads into another possible answer to the Fermi Paradox, which is one that is dealt with – in the later Revelation space books, also in uh, The Three-Body Problem, another science fiction novel.
1: The sec- second book. It's not in the first book.
0: Um, they're all linked together. It's, yeah, but I, not, I
1: haven't read this. I haven't read the second book, so so I don't know what the manifestation is. But I read the first one, and there's not. The hypothesis
0: of- is referred to as the dark forest hypothesis, yeah. um, in which the universe is a dark forest, and there are wolves that live in the forest. You'll note that wolves are the word the conjoiners use to refer to the inhibitors in revelation space. Mm-hmm. It's an idea that was around before the three body problem, but the three body problem kind of popularized it.
1: The second book did.
0: Yes, the second book did. What's the name of the the whole series as a whole? I
1: don't know what the name of the series is. Like I said, I've only read the first one. But the Dark Forest hypothesis is basically if you are an intelligent civilization, you either get wiped out or you learn to keep your fucking mouth shut. Yeah, so the reason
0: that we can't detect anybody is because everybody else is keeping silent because they don't want to get wiped out.
1: The thing that I love about Revelation Space, though, and it's kind of dumb, but I still like it, is that the thing that eventually exterminates all life in the universe is not actually the inhibitors, which most people just learn how to avoid, because the inhibitors are not actually that smart. They're very if, deliberately If I remember,
0: designed. Uh, the conjoiners fight the inhibitors to a standstill, and the inhibitors go, all right, fuck it, we're, we're going to leave you alone, we're going to go over to the other side of the galaxy and do our thing there.
1: Yeah, but then there's also the snail people who live in the shells, in fact, the snail people are basically, a, they, they, they avoided dealing with the inhibitors by just making themselves not intelligent anymore. Yeah. And then...
0: How did the grubs avoid the inhibitors? I forgot.
1: Um, by hiding.
0: Didn't they build some kind of, like, megastructure in the future that lets them do faster than light communication? How did they hide that?
1: Um, I don't remember what their exact strategy was, but my guess is it was probably a similar thing to the shrouders by building just a ball of antiphysics that no one else can get through. Um, I don't remember, I don't remember a lot about the grubs. I remember there was only one of them that actually survived in the present day, and he just basically survived by living in a basement.
0: <laughs> he survived and ruined Yellowstone. I don't think
1: he ruined Yellowstone. Hey, I think Yellowstone ruined Yellowstone. That's, ruined that's Yellowstone. where the melding
0: plague came from. It's part of their technology.
1: Yeah, but the melding plague came out of him because people were harvesting drugs from his body. That's, like, that's true, That was yeah, you're, that you're wasn't right. something he did. You're right. That's not, it's not really like his saying, fault. It's like saying, it's like saying it's my fault for giving people smallpox and they drink my blood.
0: I can't believe Max gave everybody smallpox.
1: I can also not believe what I can. Uh, (laughs) But the thing—the thing that destroys the universe in the Revelation Space world is not—is not um, (laughs) doesn't destroy the universe. It destroys the galaxy. Is not the inhibitors. It is a piece of terraforming technology that gets jettisoned from a ship as a piece of trash to make it go faster in just a random short story. It's called Greenfly, and it's a, a robot that takes a useless star system, like just a gas a star with gas giants or whatever, and turns all the matter of it into little terrariums. Like little little transparent balls that you can cultivate ecosystems inside of. But it they just they throw it out the back of the ship just as junk so that they can go faster to escape the pirates, some pirates. And then I guess the pirates get a hold of it or someone else grabs it. Probably and it just
0: randomly mutates.
1: One of the issues with any kind of Technology that you just leave to do stuff on its own is that eventually the variants of the technology that get errors that co- that cause them to replicate and destroy all the other ones and become the dominant strain. Those will, by definition, eventually become the dominant strain because they'll just they'll be the ones that wipe out all the others. Right. In the same way that the most Bullshit version of a virus is the one that is the hardiest version will eventually outcompete the others. Right. So greenfly, greenfly just decides to convert all matter into the univer- in the universe into these stars, orbited by these terrariums, and so it actually then will wipe out whatever existing life is in a given solar system and use its defense systems to fight off anything that tries to accomplish or tries to prevent it from accomplishing its mission. It's basically the archetypal paperclip maximizer except it's maximizing terrariums by converting other matter into them
0: that's that's um, that's a sort that's often referred to as uh, as a gray goo disaster in the discussion mm-hmm. of nanotechnology and that is is one postulated uh, form of a great filter that lies ahead of us. Yeah. For essentially, the reason that happens is for the same reason that cells mutate into cancer cells. Uh, just random random fluctuations, random mutations over enough mm-hmm. reproduction cycles, enough cumulative errors in, in the code will eventually result in a thing that just outcompetes all the others.
1: Right, because if its only objective is to make more of itself, then it's necessarily going to... There's going to be more of it than anything else. Yeah,
0: and there's like... One can argue there's not really anything that ever could be done about that because that is a, that is a basic property of life itself. That's that's how evolution works.
1: Yeah, the thing that reproduces itself will continue to exist. That's why that we're here. Will yeah. Not continue to exist, but the um, the thing about the great filter is that um, the great filter, both the great filter and the uh, Fermi paradox, is that um, both of those are technically not necessary causal mechanisms for. For the Delta Green setting, because Delta Green is not a setting where there's no intelligent life communicating, Delta Green is a setting where there's this like 50, 50 car pileup of intelligent beings trying to get to Earth. Right. So Delta Green is a setting where we can explore a lot of these concepts, but where the original justification for, for why we would think about this is not, is not a necessary setting element. However, it is a setting where there are lots and lots of extinct civilizations bouncing around.
0: Right. The question in 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 the setting of the the, Cthul- the Lovecraft mythos is not where is everybody, but why can't we see why why is it so hard to see everybody? Because yeah. like these things exist and people run into them, but to the wider public they're not known. You know, to astronomers can't detect the Mego mining operations on Pluto for some reason. Cosmologists don't know about the Elder Thing Empire that must be out there somewhere because they sent a colony to Earth in like sixty million years ago. So there must be a civilization out there. Why can't we see it?
1: And the explanations vary. The explanation in the Delta Green setting, which is, for a lot of people, unsatisfying, is that this activity is actually increasing to the point where it will no longer be possible to hide. And the actual mission of the player character organization is to keep it hidden. However, um, we can take a step back and suggest that the basic reason why this stuff isn't super common and obvious is anthropic principle. Humanity exists in the window between the aliens going to sleep and the aliens waking up again. And if we were to exist in a setting where these creatures were all over the place and making their presence known and awake and common, we wouldn't be around to experience the story.
0: No, they would have casually wiped us out without even realizing in much the same way that you and I would step on an ant on the sidewalk without even... But you know what I love
1: about the ant metaphor is that the ant metaphor is... It's like explains the power differential, but it also explains shit like running Cthulhu over with a steamboat or killing an elder thing, even though he's smarter than you, yeah, because, if an ant
0: bites you you're gonna you're gonna recoil, but
1: even more than that, if a bullet ant bites you and you fall over, you trip and you hit your head on a rock and you die an ant an <laughs> ant has killed you, yes. There are circumstances in which an ant, or a group of ants especially, can kill a human being. If you get swarmed by ants and you get bitten until you go into anaphylaxis and you die, you have been killed by an ant.
0: Right, right. Uh, uh, the the ant metaphor works on so many levels. Like you've seen the uh I think it was a it was a, it was a Tumblr post where somebody mm-hmm. go it describes like summoning and binding outsiders by the ant metaphor. Well, a bunch yeah. of ants draw a circle of salt around you as you're just like standing in the park, and then one of them says, "Ha, we've trapped you. Now you have to do what we say." So you go, "Okay, sure. I'll, let's 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 play along. Let's see where this goes. What what do you want from me, little ant? What do you want? What would you like?" And the ant is like, "Give me give me a pile of sugar." <laughs> okay, sure. Here here you go.
1: Yeah, you can feed the ant sugar, or you can you can kill a specific group of ants. Yeah, and those are the basically the two things you can do for them because anything else is happening outside of your field of vision and is incomprehensible to you. You can't kill. It's um you know the the other um analogy is that uh in the beloved single camera sitcom Malcolm in the Middle uh one of the characters Dewey the precocious, intelligent, um, artistic child is trying to understand religion. And he's saying, um, I went into the backyard and I found some ants and I tried to deal justly with them. I tried to smite the good ants and to spare the evil ones or, or or vice versa. I tried to, tried to, 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 kill the ones that deserved it but i had no way of knowing which ants deserved it because ants have a social order that is completely unknown to me so i just decided to smite all of them (laughs) and they could have been praying to me the entire time and i would have had no way of knowing because i can't communicate with them and for him the revelation was i must live my life which as much with as much kindness and decency as possible and just try not to think about the ants the 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 child standing over me with a garden hose ready to drown me. But for Delta Green, the message is, I must be the ant, the bullet ant that bites the man on the ankle and causes him to trip and break his head on a rock. The Delta Green setting posits another question, though, not just this principle of, of why can't we detect all this intelligent life if it is not only abundant but right under our noses. There's also the question of why Earth specifically? Because this setting lore that has evolved around cosmic horror is oh is humanity insignificant whatever but on the other hand um in delta green earth is swarming with intelligent life from space and it is all actually very interested in humanity they want to teach us how to worship the great old ones they want to take discoveries that we've made and take them to other planets they want to exchange technology and information they want to have sex and create hybrids that will then do things like allow other creatures into the universe through magical rituals.
0: Actually, yeah, the only mythos entities that are utterly unconcerned with humanity are the Elder Things, and that's because they're dead.
1: Yeah, they didn't live long enough to observe the rise of their slaves into actual intelligent beings. They only saw crude kind of half-ape, half-man things that existed somewhere further up the evolutionary tree, or down it, I guess. They, they never actually had to deal with intelligent they, – they had to deal with other intelligent races on the planet. And that's probably how they would view humanity, the same way they viewed the Star spawn and the migo and the Ithians, as just competition. Maybe competition that they could pretty easily deal with, but still, here's an intelligent civilization that uses tools and wants to take our shit.
0: Right. But even so, they specifically came to – I don't know if they sought out or or they just stumbled onto it, but they decided to settle here, which – in a universe teeming with life, one wonders what's so special about another another terrestrial planet with an oxygen atmosphere.
1: We could posit that, uh, similar to in, um, in most science fiction settings, planets are abundant, but habitable planets are quite rare. And in this case, habitable means something else because the other things are a creature that can survive in the depths of space without, you know, food or oxygen or whatever. But planets that have a biosphere are valuable for whatever reason. I think that Delta Green is also a setting where it seems like a lot of the alien creatures are basically engaged in the same activity as the Factors, which is just stealing shit left behind by other aliens. Notice how the Migo come to Earth to mine metals, but they are also devoted cultists of the Crawling Chaos. They are essentially sellouts who survive by doing the bidding of more powerful cosmic forces. I think the Migo are probably scavengers in a similar mold to the Factors that are coming to other planets to pilfer the tombs of other civilizations. Remember that in the original story, they're specifically described as not being the creators of the cities on Yugoth. They came to Yugoth after the cities were already formed by somebody else. And similarly with the trapezahedron they didn't in in haunter in the dark they didn't make it but they're the ones who brought it to earth and that's one of the cool things that's a cool contrast with the elder things is that the amigo are cultists they worship all these different gods and get boons from them in exchange for whatever service they ask the elder things i don't think are ever described as worshiping anybody they're scientists that built everything with their own hands
0: yeah they're described as being a lot like us and that they're they're a mm-hmm. technological civilization
1: there is one Elder thing that we ever see that has any interaction with any uh, religion of the setting, and that is the Elder thing that, that the guy very briefly meets in a dream vision in Dreams in the Witch House. He, for a second, is on a colony planet, which I think has a living Elder thing on it, but maybe just has the wreckage the of the civilization, and... That is a human worshipper of Nyarlathotep that has taken him there with a faster than light communications device that she has built out of her house.
0: I think I've actually read that story.
1: He wakes up—so so, so it, it's fascinating because it is a—just this very brief tie-in to the bigger setting, where he's—it's about a guy who is just sleeping in a house made by a witch— and the house's geometry lets whoever sleeps in it send their dreaming mind to other worlds and other realities. And the implication is that the witch who was – I don't remember if she was killed by witch hunters or if she just died some other way or just disappeared. The witch is not actually dead. It's just that her dreaming mind now exists independently of her physical body ah. and is forever bouncing in between the corridors of of these different worlds.
0: So was she like she died while she was astral projecting, and now she's lost among the cosmos.
1: Yeah, that's fucking. Or mad. just she signed a a um, a contract with the black man. The the head of the of the cult is Nirathathep, and this guy has a has a thing called the Book of Azathoth that you sign, which basically it's it's a form of eternal life where you your mind exists after your body disappears. And the way that I've always spun it is that Nirathathep is essentially the universe's self-correction mechanism to ensure that reality continues to exist. And the way that he does that is by procuring people who will keep Azathoth asleep, because the universe is the dream of Azathoth, and when he wakes up, the universe will end. So he is essentially the universe's version of the anthropic principle, the thing that, without it, we wouldn't be here to observe it. That's interesting. And so he is ultimately a force for the continued existence of reality, even if no one really likes him. And that also explains why he has personality in a way that the other creatures of the universe don't seem to. Like, we wouldn't ascribe a personality to Cthulhu, but we would ascribe a personality to this guy.
0: Yeah, he's the most human of any of the the, the outer entities, even the ones that like talk and interact with humans.
1: And that is a that's a thing that i i used to think was super lame about him because he was kind of like oh yeah it's the devil great but if it's the, no he's actually um he's the agent for the cosmic band <laughs> and when and when you go to the court of azathoth you see not only the servitors the, the things that play the instruments you see that in his astral choir he's got humans he's got elder things he's got he's got uh, great minds and great musicians poached from every intelligent civilization in the universe and so that's one of the reasons why this guy goes to earth and other civilizations and tries to cultivate a fandom among wizards and smart people because he needs talent and he and sometimes in order to to get someone to the level where they need to be in order to to play in the Astral Choir, you have to cultivate that talent. And so that's why he's out here teaching people spells and teaching them about the cosmos and the universe, giving people power and enlightening them. I don't know. I have a cosmology that's very different from the one that's actual, like, official Delta Green. Mine is more, like, actual classic science fiction weird tales than the the later, like, interpretation of it all is cosmic horror.
0: Yeah. Well, I like that actually. I like that uh, that that sort of melding of of uh, cosmic horror and space wizards with science fiction concepts right. and, and because that, ideas.
1: Because that's how the pulps were. Because it was all stuff that was laid down before the genre expectations had really solidified. And that's why stuff like I will I will not say that that any of the the old tales you know. Shadow of Rinsmith, etc are effective as horror. I think if you want something that's effective as horror, you look to Legati. Legati is the successor to Lovecraft, and he is a much more effective horror storyteller. But his settings don't lend themselves to adaptation into games because they don't have the same richness. They are not concerned with science fiction world building. They are typically about a fucked up thing happening to somebody with no explanation, which is a great story but doesn't make for good gameplay. Right. You need a certain level of world building, and it has to be right in the spot between the point where it becomes excessive and the point where it's not enough to, to hang on to.
0: Right. There have to be answers to the questions, even if the answers don't completely make sense. Mm-hmm. I wonder if, if I had that view of the mythos because I came to it from the direction of, of science fiction. Like right. I, I came to Call of Cthulhu from Eclipse Phase. And I came to Eclipse Phase from, like, Alistair Reynolds and Larry Niven and Arthur C. Clarke and all that. Incidentally, Clarke's first law, uh, law—or is it his third law? No, it's his—Clarke's th- third law, which is that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.
1: I don't think we're the only ones who are—who view-, view the setting this way, though, because I was told—and I haven't read it, but I was told that in one of the supplemental materials for uh, God's Teeth— Caleb Stokes wrote a very eclipse phase style explanation for what BAST is. Yeah. That BAST is an advanced entity built by an alien civilization to perform some task repetitively. Because looking looking at it through a lens of of your your science fiction will also provide explanations for just taken from other settings for things like why don't the Migo Delta Green, has a setting, can say that the Migo do not remember where they came from or what they used to look like. They don't remember who they are. And this is something that we can rip off uh, House of Sons to explain. Great book. Yeah, it's another Alistair Reynolds, and it is not in the Revelation space setting, and it is not quite as long-winded as some of the Revelation space books. It is a much easier way to get that same flavor without diving into a full-on odyssey.
0: Yeah, it's very tightly written from what I remember.
1: And it's funny because it's a bit of a shaggy dog story, but one of the cool revelations at the end, um, this is also a big spoiler.
0: Jump ahead to 35 minutes to avoid spoilers here. The
1: reason why, th- 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 there's kind of a throwaway line earlier in the book that says, oh, by the way, this galaxy just disappeared. We, we were looking at it and it just went away. We don't know why. And it turned out that the reason why the galaxy disappeared is that humans at some point waged a war against some machine civilization and the machine civilization said fuck this we're not interested in playing these these games with all these meatbags we aren't interested in revenge in fact we don't care or think about you at all we're going to go through this portal and faster than light travel to another galaxy but we cannot violate causality we cannot observe ourselves before we leave the universe will not permit that It will probably censor us out of existence somehow or the technology just won't be possible. So in order to make sure that we don't look back on our own light cone retroactively or prior to leaving, we will, as part of building the faster than light network, also just build a a big wall to block vision of the galaxy that we are fast than light traveling to, to ensure that we cannot observe ourselves before we leave and violate causality. It is dumb as hell and also brilliant. Right, And it isn't really that helpful because it means that in order to set up the Fast and Light Network, you have to be able to physically reach the point you are traveling to before building the portal. Similar to uh, how in the Peter Watts Sunflower series, the guys who we follow throughout the series are... A ship that builds, that, that travels at, at, rel- at slower than light speeds, at relativistic speeds, but builds the faster than light portals that allow humanity to come through. But the issue is that because it's been millions of years, the successor civilizations that come through the portals are not recognizably human. They are either post humans or aliens, and they are total dicks. Mm <laughs> hmm. But the Migo in Delta Green are said to have erased their own memory of their past or just thrown it away because it wasn't important and because they didn't have the storage space for it. And we can posit an alternate explanation that fits with that, where they are capable of faster than light travel, which we can assume that they are because they are servants of Nyarlathothep. And Nyarlathothep, through the Witch House, has given his servitors faster than light communications and the ability to send photons faster than light if you're a species that can convert matter to energy, which we know the Migo can, the ability to send photons also implies the ability to send other matter. So they have faster than light travel, but they but maybe the reason why they erase their own memory and alter their own appearance is to avoid violating causality. So that when they see when they when they teleport somewhere faster than light and then eventually see themselves before they left, they can think, who the fuck's that? That's just some guy, we don't know him. They don't know where they came from, they don't know who they were. So they can't violate causality.
0: Effectively, they've they've they allow themselves to move through their own light cone by shortening their own light cone. Yes, but that that dovetails into another another uh, science concept, which is uh, well, if if the Migo didn't used to look like their current appearance, what, why did they why did they alter their appearance to appear like crustaceans?
1: Because of something in biology called carcinization, <laughs> and this one is just so much fun. Carcinization is a is a biology concept that creature that that the the crab has evolved independently. The crab shape has evolved independently among many different taxa. Creatures that are not immediately related. to not
0: crabs, yeah. yeah. that
1: are not crabs have evolved to look like crabs. Crab spiders, spider crabs, various other life forms that are not taxonomically crabs.
0: Several species of lobster.
1: Yes. Typically there are other arthropods. They're not completely removed from the same Basal taxa,
0: but they're not true crabs. Uh, the anatomy is subtly different, and yet it has the same, like a shortened abdomen, um, uh, a, a bunch of legs, like the same, like six or eight legs. Mm-hmm. Something about that shape is is an extreme bio um, evolutionary advantage. It's it's an example of convergent evolution, and I I I love this idea that the Migo came to Earth and saw crabs and went, holy fuck, that's brilliant.
1: Yes, or just through millions of years of living on Earth, successive generations of their race became more crab-like because being a crab gives you power. And so the listeners who of our show who also like RPPR will remember that they recently had a, an Ultimate Base Raiders world-building episode where they posited that in the future of humanity, technology will allow everyone to inhabit a crab-based exoskeleton <laughs> that will make them more powerful than they could ever imagine, because this technology, the technology to grow a suit of crab armor will become so cheap and widespread that you can do it in your backyard.
0: But but Max, when everyone is a crab, no one will be.
1: Well, so that was the other thing, is that he posited that people would carry it a bit too far and become more crab-like, not only in their physical bodies, which they were able to alter with technology, uh, but also that they would then there would be certain people who would insist on becoming more like crabs in behavior as as well as in appearance and that this would then lead to a series of destructive wars because as we as we posited earlier a being that exists for no other purpose than to replicate itself will eventually overcome people who care about other things so the guys who want to tile the earth with human crabs—that's—that's that's the successor to the human that's, race in this world.
0: That's cancer.
1: Yeah. Okay, <laughs> that would be a great place to cut the episode. <laughs> and I, 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 I have other stuff I can do because because I did a similar I did a I did an adventure called Carcinization where um, <laughs> your your uh, your age one of the agents gets their brain stuck in a in a in a, a crab mech that the amigo built because um it was advantage it was biologically advantageous to put a human brain in a crab mech and so now one of the player characters is a crab mech and you have to figure out how to get him back into his old body while also dealing with another crab cult very similar to the one we just described <laughs> One other, one other species that we can tie into not wanting to observe yourself that also fits snugly into science fiction setting that we're both familiar with is the Ithians. Delta Green presents a vision of the Ithians as essentially omniscient, which is very different from the one presented in the original setting of Whisper in the Darkness. Sorry, um, Shadow Out of Time. Shadow Out of Time is where Yithians come from. And the Yithians in Shadow Out of Time were just guys that could time travel. They, yeah, they were just they were just people who inhabited bodies and swapped from body to body. And the text very pointedly describes Yithians who die while on missions, leaving human minds trapped in their whatever body the Yithians were using, and how they basically just had like a... a a jobs program for those guys, like a, a, a way of just giving them something to do since they could never return to their earthly form. And this vision of them as very cautious, intrepid scholars who have to move very purposely, purposefully and deliberately through time and are vulnerable to destruction of their physical forms that kills them stands in marked contrast to Delta Green's vision of Yithians as extrusions of an invincible, extra-dimensional construct. The idea that when in Delta Green, when you kill a body that has a Yithian inside of it, you have done nothing more than censor a thought out of a vast, omniscient mind.
0: Are you suggesting that the Ithians are or the ores?
1: I am not familiar enough with Star Control to suggest this. Oh, okay. Clever child. Yes. <laughs> that. Oh, that's good. I like that. I like but that a lot. But that's the Delta Green interpretation, and my my spin on it is going to go more in a Dune type of direction, which is that I'm gonna I'm gonna go back and say that the reason why the Ithians are in my vision of this of the character. Closer to the original story than to the Delta Green totally omission version is that they must be very careful about not accidentally locking in events by observing them. Because one of the things that both the Mahdib and his son Leto II the younger discovered was that observing the future is actually really bad because you cause the jihad that kills everybody, you cause the thinking machines to wipe out humanity. And the only way to stop that from happening is to deliberately cultivate a future where there are things that cannot be observed by a guy with future vision, because that's the only way humanity can ever be free of it. But in the world of Delta Green, if you have the ability to see the future, first of all, you could get censored out of existence by the Hounds of Tinalados, which I posit are another self-correction mechanism that stops the universe from being paradoxed out of existence.
0: Right, right, yeah. I I, I quite like that A universe
1: that did not have hounds would stop existing. There would be no laws of physics because paradoxes would eventually just make it impossible for the basic building blocks of matter to form.
0: Right, yeah. The Hado Tindalos being attracted to time travelers is what prevents you from shooting your own grandfather.
1: Yes, and this is similar. Unknown Armies actually has a similar setting element that I actually quite like called the authorities. The authorities are the man. They show up, the universe creates them when there is a gross violation of physical laws that needs to be corrected, because even though reality in Unknown Armies is governed by consensus of humanity's dreaming mind, it is still possible for paradoxes to tear big holes in the fabric of reality. And they needed something to prevent that, and Anthropic Principle created the authorities. It's also possible that the authorities are deliberately created by the invisible clergy, which is like – you know how Steve analysis is kind of a pain in the ass? Imagine if there were 333 of them. Oof. In Delta Green, we can – or even just in the original story, we can posit that every time the Yithians' physical bodies get destroyed and they have to abandon them and jump somewhere else, it happens because the Yithians accidentally observe it happening. Some asshole says, I want to know what happens to the cones. I want to know what happens to the beetle people. And so they look forward, and they look at the point where the beetle people or the cone people or whatever get eaten by something, and that fucks everything up for everybody. And now everybody has to write everything down on a form of media that they can transfer with their dreaming minds to a new set of bodies. They have to wipe out a new civilization by casting its, its, its minds back through time into the bodies of the things that are about to be annihilated. And it inevitably happens because it's goddamn. It's it, like the Trolldalmadorans pushing the button that destroys the universe. They know, they they know it's got to happen eventually. So that is a way, and I, I like the reason why I go so hard on this interpretation. Even though the like, there's there's stuff that's cool about like the omniscient construct interpretation. The reason why I like the cautious scholar's interpretation is that it makes them more gameable if they don't already know everything and if they don't have the ability to just solve all their problems by knowing the answer.
0: Right, they, they don't have perfect omniscience, they have partial omniscience. There's just enough holes in their omniscience that you could outwit them and outplan them if you are very careful about it. It
1: goes back to the theme of extremely powerful scavengers that have just stolen things from other better civilizations. The Ithians in the original story send guys out across time because they have knowledge that they want from other people. They want magical spells and technology that human beings have created or that human beings have stolen from other people. And so that's why when you read the story and the guy gets stuck in the Ithian library in a Ithian body, he talks to people from different eras of humanity. He talks to sorcerers from the ancient past and the ancient future. He talks to just regular guys like Romans and monks and just ordinary people. Because there is something about that knowledge that the Ithians want. Uh, that's 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 the um, the great race of Yeth. Are there other sectors of the setting that you think are interesting to explore from a perspective of how they intersect with? other genres of science fiction. Because we could hypothetically do this all day, but I'm wondering if there are other high points that you can think of.
0: Um I did have one thought earlier in our discussion about why Earth is so special. Go ahead. Which was that isn't isn't it isn't one of the descriptions of Shubnigarath that she lives at like the center of the Earth?
1: Um I think that's Ubo Sothla, but he's basically just Shubnigarath but as a blob on Earth instead of as a God from another dimension. But right. Ubo Sothla is is a great one for to, to, to go into in this in this context. For those of you who aren't familiar with this guy, he's not, a, he's not a Lovecraft original. He's like Clark Ash and Smith or Durleth or something. He is a big blob that just emits life endlessly. It is He is a biological machine that produces other biological machines. And depending on who you ask, if you want to plug him into the broader cosmology, he is either something that the Elder Things found on Earth and used as the prototype for the first Shoggoths, or he is himself a creation of the Elders. So 50-50 on where he comes from, but he is an ocean of endless biological possibility, and it makes you quite powerful to control him. He may also be the guardian of tablets on which are inscribed the wisdom of the oldest gods. It's not clear how that fits into the storyline, if at all. I think that this was just one of those stories that was designed to function on its own, and you can slap it anywhere you want into the broader cosmology if that's your interest. But yeah, Ubisatha Ubus- lives in. Um, we assume he lives in Antarctica. We assume that he is what w- existed at point one oh three, which the Karatekia tried to exploit. But that's just my personal trying to plug the pieces in.
0: So my thought was maybe that's what's special about Earth. Either that Earth is where Ubusotha or Shubnik or, Uth or whatever is like located, and being like a pseudo deific entity that may or may not be a source of you know biological life. That's what's special about Earth. Earth isn't Earth isn't just another life bearing world. Earth is the life-bearing world. Yeah. So that's why everybody wants to come here because Earth is not just habitable. It is teeming with life because Shabnigarath or Ubusath or whatever is, is is located is a is here. The Earth is where it lives.
1: Yeah. There was something about this, and I think there was an official Delta Green fiction that addressed this. And I don't remember which one it was, but I remember the exact line where a character is answering the specific question of why are there so many fucking aliens on this planet? And the answer um, is because Earth is a door.
0: I forget. I think it was either Dennis or it was um, Galanzi who wrote that. It was on the, the Delta Green blog.
1: Yeah, that, that it is not an accident that there are so many fucking guys running around on this planet. It is because this is specifically a place where the – first of all, where the, the, the barrier between worlds is weak, but also because conditions both naturally and artificially are predisposed towards giving rise to life. Because there are lots of elder races that have also just arisen on Earth in addition to coming from space. Serpent people and – so advanced sorcerers from the past. Starspawn. Starspawn are, I think, a a space creature, but Deep Ones are definitely an Earth, an Earth original. Oh, that's right, yeah. The Kenyan claim to be from space. Frankly, I think that that's just wishful thinking on their part. My hypothesis about them, and I think I stole this from somewhere, is that the Kenyan are what humanity would be if they were allowed to develop their psychic potential without interference by spacemen. Because the thing about the Kenyan is they specifically say we went to live underwater so we can get away from those fucking sky devils – underwater. <laughs> we went to live underground because we wanted to get away from those fucking sky devils. The and sky I,
0: devils in um, the Cetric tanks.
1: Yeah, and my my hypothesis, which I think – again, I think I've stolen from an ice cave discussion or something, is that the sky devils are the Migo trying to stop humanity from becoming a full-on race of psychic badasses or some other people who are deliberately interfering with, with our psychic development as a species. They're, they're inhibiting us? Yes, exactly. And the Kinyan are people who went to live in the Earth's basement to get away from that shit and and became a race of mythos-worshipping psychic godlings. And so they are a natural endpoint for humanity's development. They're a preview of what we could eventually become. But there's also a suggestion that they have in their midst a poison pill that was deliberately introduced to call them as a threat – because it's repeatedly described that their civilization is, is one in decline <laughs> and that they've, got, they've, they've turned away from achieving anything and basically just into pointless ennui, killing and resurrecting themselves, just endless sex, drugs, and violence, amusements that they can devise for themselves. And it is mentioned repeatedly that one of their gods that they worship is the not-to-be-named one. They worship the unspeakable one. My, my suspicion is that if we wanted to plug this into the bigger Delta Green cosmology, we do know that the Migo are aware of Haster, the unspeakable one, because it's mentioned in Whisperer in the Darkness. So it's quite possible that the uh, Migo – we do know that the Kenyan get gods introduced to them from somewhere outside their civilization. It's mentioned in the in the story of the Mound that they have a temple of Tsathagwa that has been rededicated to Shubnigarath. So they clearly have some religions coming into the civilization from somewhere outside, like from relics they discover or something. It's quite possible that the Migo just introduced them to the yellow sign in order to just get rid of them (laughs) to say, okay, technological civilization, here is a really cool new toy to play with because the Kenyan are obsessed with novelty. They want things that are new, and the appeal of... Specifically, the yellow sign is that it is something that makes everything new again because it causes you to forget.
0: Even with a mind virus.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: They, they weaponize the yellow sign. I love it.
1: Yeah. I'm, the, I'm, I'm and picturing
0: it, like a Kenyan Doge now going like, "Wow, this this place is great."
1: Yeah, this is a place of honor. <laughs> I bet some exalted deeds are commemorated here. Yeah. So one of the things that 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 you run into with this though is that a lot of these sci-fi concepts are kind of difficult to actually make relevant or playable, yeah. So, like, Kenyan were poison pilled by the yellow sign. That's something that you're not going to discover unless a Kenyan comes up to you and says, hey, fuck the Migo, they tried to wipe out my species with this Carcosa bullshit, and they're probably trying to do the same thing to you, if I'm being honest. Like, it's a, it's a difficult thing. You can have it in the background as an excuse for something like, hey, why is there a Kenyan in the Imperial United States building? Which is something that I did. I, I, I had when the players go into the Imperial United States building, they can look out the window and see a Kenyan step pyramid that's been covered with a strange coral and resin because their civilization has been sucked into the other dimension. But again, like the causal mechanism behind that is not something that's ever going to be interactive, So these are like big revelations that you can put as a background detail, but they're sometimes quite difficult to actually make playable. So is there a way that you think um, this can be made gameable, or is it more of something that's a fun background element?
0: I think a lot of this is mostly just useful as background set dressing and to, to think about and to derive story ideas from rather than build story ideas around you know fun things for for people to figure out in the course of you know exploring exploring the world of eclipse phase or delta green or colossus or whatever fun little tidbits of knowledge to gain to kind of build a broad because that's that's part of the fun settings like this is is building a a broader picture of what what the universe looks like even if it's not directly gameable even if there's no direct benefit to doing it that 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 gets you a benefit in in the moment it's still fun to do so maybe not but maybe that doesn't matter
1: I think that coming up with fun explanations for things is fun. It's yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. And like realistically a lot of stuff in RPGs that gets um popular is popular because it's evocative and fun to read and not necessarily because every piece of it generates good gameplay. Like and I, and I'm not saying that to criticize Delta Green's design. I think that Delta Green has a lot of scenarios that have good gameplay, but I think that the ones that are really stick in the mind are not necessarily the ones that are the best from a design perspective they're the ones that are very evocative and that's an important lesson for like someone who's trying to create something is you're not gonna you're not necessarily gonna gonna be remembered for technical competency you're gonna be remembered for being memorable Mm -hmm. by absolute definition so yeah a lot of this is just gonna end up as background flavor detail Um, the ways that it becomes gameable is when you seize on a on an element of it and stick that into an adventure, like, you know, why are the Kenyan and Carcosa, or why did this guy get his brain put inside the body of an invisible crab tank, and it's, it's, the rest is just fun flavor. I don't think we're going to get as a good stinger as as, as, as the, the crab cancer.